And welcome back to CCL's podcast, Lead With That, where we talk current events in pop culture to look at where leadership is happening and what's happening with leadership. On October 18th, U.S. General and Statesman Colin Powell died due to complications associated with COVID-19. Among his many accolades, he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs and Secretary of State, the first African-American to hold either position. And that kind of symbolism was only a glimpse at all he represented. He was the son of immigrant Jamaican parents. He began as a professional soldier with a career that made him a hero in Vietnam and ended in him becoming the first black national security advisor during the end of the Reagan administration. I failed to mention he was also the youngest chairman of the Joint Chiefs at the time he was appointed. And with so much accomplishment, and with such proximity to the highest levels of leadership in the world, obviously we had to dig in. And Colin Powell, like all people, led a complex life with much to consider. Today, though, we want to look at Colin Powell's leadership philosophy. We want to learn and explore the wisdom and insights we can gain from a man who moved from the highest reaches of military leadership to the highest echelons of civilian leadership. I'm Ren Washington, one of the partners here at the Center, and as usual, I'm joined with my friend and host and another partner, Allison Barr. Allison, have you ever done ROTC or served in the military? I have not. Have you? No, but I, I'm the son of a military parent. My mm. dad was in the Army, so I feel tangentially I got some experience. Yeah, and what, if you could describe your experience as a child of a military family in like two sentences, how would you describe it? Yes, command and control was something that happened. Gotcha. I feel like I want yeah. you to elaborate more on that, but... <laughs> you know, I think it's a podcast for a different day. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> Ren's childhood. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that's a much longer podcast, and we don't have nearly the couch space for it. But I think it was really interesting what I learned as I was growing up with a father in the military was some of the, I think, tension that we get to explore in the work that we do, because we, in the Colorado Springs office, uh, particularly the the Air Force is there, there's an Army post, we've worked with a lot of people in defense. And people from that community, I think, look at leadership as pretty hierarchical, pretty mm-hmm. top down orders need to be followed, and it has to be so. And, and I understand that in that context. And that's why I thought Colin Powell was such an interesting dig, because he mentions the importance of command and control and talks about it too in in his 13 rules. But also, I think he was forced to experience the nuance of of something else. Yeah. And I, when I was digging in and listening to, I listened to a couple podcasts and interviews of his, and there was um, a podcast in which a cadet says something along the lines to him, what would you do if somebody you were leading said, hey, I, I don't want to go to war. This is not what I want to do. And I'm having an internal conflict. And I think that command and control, the way he explained it in that podcast was so fascinating. And that there's a time and a place to speak up to your leaders and be really, really honest. And that was part of his legacy was saying, you know, this might not be a popular opinion, but we should do this or we should not and feeling very strongly about it. And he phrased it more on the long lines of being honest, always honest, rather than being the one who's in command or control. It is more around the lines of being honest. Hmm. I love that word honesty. And when I was looking into his life and his history and really the kind of leader that he was and maybe the leadership he represented, there were some words that stuck out to me, like like honesty. But what other words for you did you think rose to the top when you were reviewing uh, Colin Powell's 
life and looking at his leadership style. Well, first, I have to share a fun fact with you. Did you know that he crossed paths several times with Elvis Presley? With Elvis, you say? (laughs) Yes. I'm afraid I did not know that. Yeah, it's interesting what you can learn when you start to listen to random podcasts about people and what they focus on. So some of the other words were not related to Elvis, of course, but dignity, honesty, certain level of humility and being humble. I appreciate his way and commitment of moving forward and viewing mistakes as a way to move forward. He talked a lot about being a straight C student growing up and that, you know, he was never promised anything and, and that worked for him. And it really made me think about having a growth mindset. Hmm. Yeah. Humility was one of those words for me that stuck out. And I think it's interesting the exploration of humility and having a growth mindset and being humble enough to look at opportunities of learning and growth as opportunities to get better. I think he said something that once, I think whether you're having a setbacks or not, the role of a leader is always display a winning attitude. Mm, Yeah. You know, the role of a leader is always to display a winning attitude. And that kind of humility, maybe in the space of uh, when things are going awry, I might have to recognize that that's true, but also my role is to represent some kind of light in the darkness. And when I think growth mindset, that's sort of what I think that, you know, for a fixed mindset, someone looks at challenges as borders or failures as stop gates. And I think Mm -hmm. the winning attitude kind of looks as challenges as opportunities, as failures, as learnings, as everything to be better. Yeah. And there was a quote that I wanted to make sure that I included here that really stuck with me. And he's asked, what did you do? What did you try to do to make all of your accomplishments happen? And he said, and I quote, I'm quoting here, I was never promised promotion. I was never promised anything. When I entered the military, I was told they didn't want to hear anything about my background. They didn't want to hear anything, anything at all. And what we care about is performance. And that he said, I came to the army to do my best every single day and to be a good soldier. And that's what I did was lived for each day to be the best that I could each day. And while, you know, look, that might be a little bit cliched statement, but it's certainly admirable. And I think really it's his movement through mistakes and commitment to growth that really stands out to me the most. I couldn't help but think about the word meritocracy when you were reflecting Mm. on Colin Powell's statement there. And meritocracy is something that I think you and I are active in our equity, diversity, and inclusion space. Mm -hmm. And in in a lot of the, the literature around equity, diversity, inclusion, you'll hear this word of merit or meritocracy. And I've worked with people in the past who've said that we don't have issues here because we're a meritocracy. We hire people who deserve to because of their their hard work. And when I hear from Colin Powell and I think about maybe the natural equitable structures of a command and control environment, that resonates with me and seems like it could work. But I do want to take a pause because I think that's a caution of someone who might come from that environment integrating into a more nuanced space where leadership is more social. And really looking at the idea of merit is something that needs to be explored where it's not just who's performing at the highest, but who's actually given the opportunity to perform at the highest. So I 
don't know if we were ready to go down that rabbit hole, but I mean, what's your experience from someone who believes and has grown up that merit is the path to success? And then they've been shifted to a, a different environment, like a corporate environment, and where merit is really a lot to do with opportunity and privilege to to gain merit. Right. I think it's very nuanced and it, like everything, depends. Yeah. I mean, you will hear stories of people who are promoted and put into positions of power who are embedded into the family dynamic that owns the business, for example. That's an extreme example, of course. But I think because human human beings are biased, we all are, every single one of us, I think it's really hard to consider that we would have any organization who's exclusively allowing people to move up the ranks, so to speak, only based on merit from an equitable perspective. It's almost impossible because so long as we're not equitable as a society, Hmm. you cannot mirror that at a workplace because the same human being is showing up at the workplace. Yeah. What do you think? I I love that big picture look of, I think sometimes addressing merit in the system is maybe a futile effort because we've got to just address the merit in big picture society. So Mm -hmm. I think one thing that would help someone like Colin Powell in that conversation or just any leader really, that humility. And, you know, when I was looking at Colin Powell's 13 rules of leadership, yeah, you know, it's it's fun to do. I think we like, hey, let's do a leadership profile on this leadership podcast. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if we're going to be as lucky to do more where the leader has 13 rules of leadership. So it's pretty easy uh, pickings right. to dig into. But I one of the things that's most resonant, I think, to embrace the humility in the context of the meritocracy conversation or anything else is something he said in his third rule, avoid having your ego so close to your position that when your position falls, your ego goes with it. And I think a major part of humility, a major part of effective leadership is to kind of separate and detach yourself from your role or your authority. You know, when I think about the most influential leaders that I've ever met, and we talk about this at the center when we explore influence, a conversation of do you have influence because of power and authority and position, or do you have influence because of the power you gain from your personal connection from people? And that seems to be one that's really resonant where your power and position might only give you so much authority for so long. But maybe if you can check your ego at the door where you're not so identified with I'm the boss, you have to do what I do. You have to say what I say. uh, Then maybe that's the kind of leadership lesson that we could all benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's all kinds of cultural conversations we could have too. And workplace culture is certainly one of them. And if, if Colin Powell was raised in a military family and then went on to be in the military, then there's a certain cultural that that becomes embedded likely in his personality, right? And from his parenting, we're talking about how people develop as humans too, right? And so again, it just depends. Like it depends on the workplace culture that you're in and what your own background is. You know, we have clients all the time who sometimes will feel absolutely devastated when they get their 360 feedback results, for example, right? Talk about an <laughs> ego crusher. And I'm, I'm right there too. You know, you read 37 things that your peers and your boss say you're fantastic at, and then they give you three tips for improvement, right? And people's ego, like they just become absolutely deflated. And so, yeah, I, I think, again, I already said this, but Colin Powell's perspective on looking at failure as opportunity 
you know, what he says is you've, you have to look at what you missed, look at what you missed. And others might have made mistakes at the same time with you. And we can look at those later. And his perspective was, I need to correct myself first, grow from that failure and then throw away the word failure and do differently next time. Yeah. I love, he says, get mad, then get over it. Yeah. (laughs) It's just the idea of, okay, let me recognize, let me see where I fell short and then move. Let's get to action. And I think when I talk leadership and when I talk to leaders or people who are trying to make a difference for teams or the people that they work with, or frankly, when we're trying to make a difference for the people at home, just how do we look at what we can control? And I think so often we get wrapped around the axle or bound up about these things that have our own failures, our own mistakes, or anything we can anticipate or anything we can remember and kind of get bogged down in that. And you know, I mentioned perseverance or, or perseverance rather is one of those words that stuck out or sticks out for me with Colin Powell. And that's key to the perseverance. I think it's key to our rumination work that we talk about where get mad, then get over it. Like get present. Don't ruminate or stick in those things that aren't working for you. And he always said this other brilliant thing. And so listeners get ready. This is going to be an episode of platitudes, but they're really good. Uh, he said, always focus on the front windshield and not the rear view mirror. And for me, I've had really positive experiences with leaders who don't get stuck in the past, mm-hmm. but are always helping us to use the past to frame where we're going next. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember being in my early 20s and, you know, had my first, I'll air quote, real job out of college and the environment that I was in, we sort of had a running joke that was, don't hurt people, don't burn the building down, don't steal, and everything else we can fix. Everything else is fixable, right? (laughs) And you can't linger over that failure. You're right. There's a lot of cliches and corny quotes that we could throw out, and I probably will during this podcast, but he did embody that. I mean, he made mistakes and he owned them publicly, very, very publicly. How many leaders do you know who do that at the top, though, right? Well, you know, that, that does bring to mind the, the tension that persists around the role he had in the initial invasion of Iraq. And, and mm-hmm. then, two, reflecting on how hard it is maybe to own one's culpability or role in, in something that can make a seismic impact on millions of people. And I think he had a really unique recognition of that. And I think, too, that's a highlight of the complexity of, of leaders and leadership. The idea that heavy weighs the crown. Mm-hmm. People in leadership positions often have access to information and more visibility on the complexities of the problem than some of the people that report to them, that, that exist in those structures. And so when I think of owning one's part in a failure or recognition of a wrong move, a part of the way that leaders can make that conversation easier, I think, is create more visibility and more transparency to me as the leader and in my decision making. And and maybe I get to backpedal back into humility where it's that recognition that I may not have all the answers. And in fact, admission to such isn't a failure, but it's a success. Yeah. And you're making me think of, gosh, I think it was Dick Cheney who joked that Colin Powell's ratings were so high that he could afford to make some mistakes here and there, hmm. which is it's interesting, right? And if you translate to that to the workplace, you have an employee who 
makes mistakes over and over and over again, will they be given that same equal treatment on the 16th time they make the same mistake? It's an interesting translation. Colin Powell was pretty favorable amongst both parties and amongst a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot to do with who he was, of course, as a human. But at the workplace, you know, what does that look like? I think a lot about what does that look like? Mistake making and between me and you, would we be treated differently if we made mistakes? I don't know, right? How how does that work? Uh, likely. And I think it has to do less between, well, Lord, I mean, would we be treated differently, Allison? You and I, especially, yes, there's a, a multitude of reasons why we'd be treated differently. One, you're more awesome than I am. Two, you're cooler <laughs> than I am. Uh, but moreover, I think when I think about Colin Powell or Dick Cheney's comment about, hey, he can afford to make some some mistakes, it, it talks about that ratio, I think, that we have in our relationships and feedback of positive to negative. Right. And the grace that we give to people that we trust and know versus those that we don't. And so what that means for me in normal leadership, if you're leading a team out there or you're part of a team is, what are you doing to create an environment where you have a bank account that you can draw on, where mm. if you make a mistake or if you have to deliver tough feedback or if you, you muck something up, can that be juxtaposed against all the other good things you're doing and explicitly uh, making so? You know, I think that's an interesting sort of balance. And I know the truth that a lifetime of work can be destroyed in a moment. But two, I think in sustained relationships and in strong connections, and with trust, transparency, with, with candor, if I make a mistake, but I've demonstrated to you my presence, if I've kind of contributed to that bank account, then when I make a withdrawal, it's not so painful. Right. And why do you think we might be treated differently or be given graces when others aren't? I mean, it just, I think context is everything. You know, if, if, I, if I'm consistently making the same mistake and it's, well, gross misconduct would be very different, of course, right? But if I'm making the same mistake over and over and my boss has had several conversations with me about it, the conversation might look different, right? And it Mm. just depends. I mean, some people have disabilities that prevent them from learning. So it's just so, so dependent on context and goes back to me. Human beings are complex. We don't have an equitable world right now. And so everything is contextual. And then there's employment law and all these other things that play into that, right? I know I keep going back to this other well. I was just in Maryland with a client and we were having this conversation uh, about kind of what it looks like to give people a fair shake. And someone used an example of when kids have dyslexia in school, they're given extra test time. Mm. But if someone has a comparable weakness in the office space, there's really not as much runway or understanding. There's no extra test time. You're kind of like get the job done and move on. And I think. Maybe that's one of the characteristics that's most akin to the command and control style. And command and control, for those who are unfamiliar, I know we said it a couple of times, it's a very top-down, I'm on the top of the heap, I give orders, you follow kind of structure. And they're typically with a hierarchy where there's not that many people on the top and it kind of widens out in the pyramid where more and more people are down in the org, the lower you go. And so I think that's an interesting kind of command and control approach, but Maybe the shift from that starts to be a that recognition, that that humility again of maybe not getting too much in one's own way. 
And and that's, I think, something that we can keep in mind as leaders all the time is, mm-hmm. are, do we ever work so hard to prove ourselves right or validate our own selves that we get in the way of success? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure, right? A hundred percent. Like we could, I think it's great that we acknowledge like inequities and we acknowledge that we're not all on even playing field. And at the same time, there is a mindset that powerful leaders, great leaders, successful leaders have. And it goes back again to that growth mindset. And when you do make a mistake, I know you mentioned this already, there are people who will ruminate, ruminate, right? And their research will show you that you're more likely to make a mistake if you ruminate over your mistakes. It's such, it's such an unfair cycle. And so I think the main difference between those two mindsets is really the belief that you either believe that like ability and intelligence is permanent and fixed, or you believe that it's multiple and changeable. And of course, you know, we've proved at the center through our research that you can, you can learn how to have a growth mindset. And so, it, you know, there's part of it that does start at the individual level that when I look back through the timeline of Colin Powell's life, it seems to me that that was one of his greatest strengths was the ability to say, wow, that was a very big mistake. Let me learn from it and move forward versus, and I'm sure he did ruminate here and there because he's human, but that's, that's a really strong skill set to have to be able to move forward after making quite a public mistake that he made. Perceived mistake, I should say. Some people didn't think it was a mistake. Right. Yeah. Is number one leadership lesson. It ain't as bad as you think. It will get better in the right. morning. And and maybe that's the the a real central part part to perseverance and managing the rumination is that distance. You know, even a, a man, a fallible man, a human man, like uh, he, like all the other humans, you know, made a mistake and maybe a seismic mistake and one that could potentially color the legacy of, a, of an amazing life lived. And even in that space, you know, I often read these things and I think, all right, Colin, let's. I'd be curious to talk to him. How do they work? You know, how did your yeah. lessons work? Was it as bad as you thought? Did it look better in the morning? And I think that perseverance, that's the kind of sustainment posture you need when you're trying to attain that growth mindset, uh, when you're trying to be in that space. And so his humility coupled with his resilience perspective, his, his point of view on always pushing, those things really stuck out for me and, and are something I think people can model if they try to capture a little bit of that lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And you mentioned a few minutes ago, I'm going to paraphrase what you said, but essentially having a bank of trust, right? And like, what tips might you give a manager or somebody who's maybe brand new to a different organization? Like, how do you build trust with people when you're new to a team so that when you do make a mistake, because people will, you will, um, there's a little bit more grace. Yeah. We get to talk about trust in its multiple forms a lot at CCL. And I immediately think about how you can cultivate trust through three dimensions. And, and we're lucky enough to work uh, with the Reynas, who have, Dennis and Michelle, who've devoted their life and careers to looking at trust. And so we deploy their model of you know, trust and communication, trust and capability, trust and character. And so if you're a new manager or you're just a manager trying to be more intentional, you know, what does it look for you to demonstrate trust in those three areas? Not only demonstrate that you can be trusted, but demonstrate that you can trust others. Mm. That's a tactical approach. And then the other one, which I will say for the rest of my life, I firmly believe it. And folks, get ready to hear some more of it about 
SBI feedback around our feedback model and how you need to give more positive feedback than negative feedback. It's just a way to keep things balanced, not to pat each other on the back for things we don't need to be patted on the back for, but really to help people recognize that they're doing best-in-class behaviors, that it's making an impact on me, it's making a positive impact on the team. And so when I have to give you tough feedback or when I make a mistake as a leader, you look at me and, and you've seen that I've, I've been willing and working towards creating a bank of positivity. So I don't know, those, those two things, the three C's of trust and five to one. What about you? Well, I will echo your sentiments on the Reinas. They wrote a fantastic book called Trust and Betrayal at the Workplace that I've, I think I've read three or four <laughs> times. It's very, very good. And they talk about trust being reciprocal, which is something you already said, Ren, but it's something that hit home for me in that the more that an individual trusts themselves, the more likely they will be to trust other people. And I find that to be very, very fascinating. And also that when trust is broken, it will be broken frequently. And there's room to, to mend. There's a process that they walk you through to mend trust when trust has been broken at the workplace. And so there's really no reason then for when people make mistakes at work, again, so long as it's not gross misconduct, right, to be able to mend those situations. And Ren, you just offered another tool that I was going to talk about too, which is SBI. And it's so crucial to be able to communicate in a really clear way if you are a manager, when you expect a different result from somebody that you manage. And oftentimes that doesn't happen. You know, we talk to people and our clients a lot who are nervous about delivering critical feedback. They don't want to hurt people's feelings. And you'll hurt people's feelings more if you don't give it. You will. To add another leader who maybe one day will get the profile. Brene Brown, and clear is kind, mm -hmm. and unclear is unkind. And to go back to Colin Powell, rule number five, be careful what you choose. And so when we think about trust and betrayal in the workplace, sometimes our choices might have an impact on people, and we're not really aware of it. And we have to be conscientious and critical about the choices we make and how it's going to impact others. You know, I'm with a group of people this week right now, and, and it was 360 week. Allison. So they got their 360 degree feedback. Okay, you're chuckling because we know. And so for those who don't know, 360 is a, a, where you get to do an assessment on yourself and answer a series of questions about yourself and uh, highlight and think about what your strong areas are, are in your areas of development. And then everyone around you gets to answer those too. Your peers, your direct reports, if you have them, your boss, your boss's boss. And it can be really interesting for people to kind of look in that moment to see the choices they've made and the impact it has on them. And sometimes people leave saying, wow, I've got this lifted intentionality, this lifted awareness. And I can tell people honestly that sometimes that's enough to get the ball rolling. And that's, the, that's where the snowball starts on the top of the hill before it turns into that big, big, big snowball that's rolling down. I mean, that's where momentum starts. It's being aware and careful of what you choose and then acting on that choice. And I can't help but segue to rule number eight, check the small things. You know, he was a, <laughs> Colin Powell was a, a stickler for details, but the details, that's you know what they say, the devil's in the details, but sometimes it's the small things that make a big difference, especially when it relates mm -hmm. to trust. Yeah, I mean, there's what his, he has 13 rules, yeah. right? His 13 rules of leadership, right? I mean, I'm sure... 
we could talk for hours about all of them. And I think what you're highlighting for me now is how important communication is. And again, back to that honest communication that Colin Powell mentioned, and you mentioned Brene Brown, clarity is kind, being honest is kind, how crucial that is for success at the workplace. I had I was talking to a client just yesterday and you know, we have a pretty jovial relationship and she was nervous about going for a new director role in her workplace and she's just nervous, you know, it's a new new step for her. And I said, well, do you like people? And she sort of laughed and yeah, of course, why? And I said, then you've got the biggest step out of the way. You know, if you, if you manage and lead people, you need to like people. And if you like people, then you're more likely to be in relationship with them enough to develop them, which is the most important, most important part of being a good leader is developing your team, right? And that involves sometimes giving critical feedback. However, what do we say the ratio is five to yeah. one? I think it's grown since really? the last time I looked about five or five or six to one. And that's not to say to be super literal about that, but it is incredibly important to let people know specifically what they're doing well. So it's a really nice thing to say. Ren, I enjoy working with you. That's nice. It's a nice thing to say. It is. Thank you. But that was do you nice. Know... <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, like it's 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 very helpful and kind to be specific, right? Like, Ren, I appreciate so much that you ask how I'm doing. I I really do appreciate that. So now you know, right? I know. And again, that's a very loose example, but it's very, very important rather than say your presentation was great. Hey, when you laid out the bullet points in sequential order, that was really easy for me to understand. Then people will know what to repeat. I don't think that it's small. You know, I'm going to give you all a glimpse into my life. My wife and I did a, a pre-marriage counseling session with this guy named Dr. Kuhlman in Brooklyn, New York. So there you go, Dr. Kuhlman. I expect my check in the mail. Uh, but it was a really interesting session and something we learned in there, and this credit goes to him, was he, he highlighted the ratio positive to negative, but what he mentioned too was this idea of a negative emotional override. When, when there's an imbalance, or let's say you're an employee and your manager only gives you negative feedback, then you're eventually going to be in this negative emotional override. And when that happens, basic neutral things become shocks, become offensive, become hard to swallow. So if I was your manager, Allison, and you were a negative override, and then I gave a project to Eric on our team as opposed to you, uh, and let's say it was specific to social media and exactly his job title, it would be understandable and easy for you to look at me and go, see, Ren doesn't like me. He never gives me the opportunity, even though the opportunity is not in your space. And so when I think about that and the connection, like you were saying with, hey, do you like people Add leadership roles, like you said, I think really is about developing your people to take your job. And, yep. and so I think about like rule 10 for Colin Powell, remain calm, be kind. And it's the idea, well, if I'm going to hire someone to take my job, geez, like, give me a little heart flutter. Why don't I chill out, especially when I'm under duress, especially when things are going badly. What does it look like for me to be calm and be kind? And then can I use that to make sure I facilitate a relationship with people? where they're not negative override. Because the other side of the coin is true. If I'm positive emotional override, that means sometimes a neutral thing will be positively received from my team. So the same situation for Allison, I give the job to Eric, you'll say, good call, and you'll help Eric get the job done, and you'll say, hey, what can I do to help the project? And all of a sudden, that's just shifted because you've been told regularly what you've been doing that's best in class, that's making a difference. 
Yeah, and you make me think of the negativity bias too. Human beings have a negativity bias, yeah. and there's a whole lot of research on that. And it's, um, you know, humans, hum, human beings are primed to keep themselves out of danger. And so if we bring that more into a leadership or work conversation, we are biologically wired to focus on negative things. How many times, like, if you've had, this is, this is to everybody listening and you too, Ren, like, if you've gotten food poisoning from a restaurant, do you tell people? Well, I, I'd never have, but I can imagine I would. Uh, what? I mean, I've gotten food poisoning. <laughs> I've never gotten it from a restaurant. Okay. But okay, I would well, absolutely, my, I probably okay, would tell well, people, this... I'd be like, Allison, don't go to this place because then it yeah. was me and the porcelain goddess for the next 12 hours. <laughs> right. Okay. So maybe not the greatest example, but we're more likely to, to take in and focus on negative stimuli. Yeah. And it's human nature, but it's a pattern that we can interrupt. Like you just said, we can interrupt that. And, and I will say, because like, we've talked about rumination a little bit in this podcast, if you are someone who ruminates, you are human and you are very normal. One thing that you can do is write it down. Um, research says if you physically, the act of writing, not typing, but physically, the act of mm -hmm. writing will help to lower your cortisol levels. So there's one pro tip for all of our ruminators out there. And another one. Rule 12, don't take counsel of your fears or naysayers. I, I share this quote all the time, and it reminds me of Mark Twain. Most of the worst things in my life never happened to me. When we ruminate, we ruminate about our fears or about the naysayers, right? We give credence to the, yeah. the people who doubt us in our own fears. And sometimes that's what I mean for a manager to get out of your own way. Sometimes, too, for leaders and you're on a team or you're in a high-stakes opportunity, and it, the pressure's on and the pressure is real and the stakes are high. It's easy to tell yourself a story about all the things that are going to go wrong or all the people who told you you couldn't do it. And don't give counsel to those fears. Don't listen to those fears or naysayers. Uh, they don't matter. And in the truest sense, I think when I look at the arc of Colin Powell's leadership lessons is this presence, this hereness, this nowness, this clarity of vision, and be demanding. Rule 11. I, I mean, this guys he's got, he's, he's full of them. And so just that really connects to me and the thing, the kind of leadership that I want to be a part of that, that I've seen people make a difference for other people in. Yeah, that's a good one. And it, I think even more so what you just said proves that negativity bias even further, right? Uh, someone said to me recently, why are negative people so much louder? Why are they, <laughs> my critics so much louder? They just stick with me. And that can be true for a lot of people. It's again, you hear 35 things that you do really, really well. And then one person says something very critical of you. And it's for most people, they'll harp on that one thing. And again, that's very normal. But I like that rule, that last one. What number was that, Ren? 13? 12. 12. But 13. Well, now I need to know it. what's 13. Tell us. Don't, don't worry. I got you covered. Uh, perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. Mm. Now, this is an interesting idea. I think people are apprehensive or have an aversion to optimism. This idea that thinking optimistically is somehow a disadvantage. Mm. Now, I could say unbridled optimism might not serve you if the house is on fire. You're looking around like the house is on fire. Well, the good news is we're warm, everybody. And maybe that's, that's an optimism too far. But I think what that is is like the slippery slope fallacy. People go, well, we can't be optimistic because then the risk is when things are really bad, we're not going to see it. And I don't think that's what Powell's suggesting. 
I mean, if we go back to one of the first things that I said, it's whether we're having setbacks or not, a leader should always be displaying a winning attitude. And that's what optimism means mm -hmm. to me as a leader, and maybe a lesson that I took from Colin Powell, that when plans change, it's easy to get frustrated. In the military, they have this uh, saying that no battle plan survives the first shot. Or Mike Tyson, the famed boxer, once said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the <laughs> face. And it's to say, we can plan all we want, but sometimes when the plans don't go awry, what you'll see some leaders do is kind of grab their hair or put their head in their hands or start running around frantically, like, what are we going to do? And instead, maybe the perpetual optimism is, hey, team, are we prepared? Do we know how to take care of this? And are we fit enough mentally, emotionally to address this thing? Highlighting those and saying, then, yes, we can do this. That's the kind of optimism that I think people start looking at each other and say, yes, we can be more than the sum of our parts. Mm -hmm. Have you seen optimism be a hindrance or a help to people? What's been your experience of leaders and that word optimism? Well, I think optimism is misunderstood. I think you highlighted that nicely. The optimism does not mean bypassing. If the house is on fire, yeah. you know, like my house is on fire, I'm not going to say to you everything's great and fantastic. It doesn't mean that I bypass reality. It means, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a belief. It's a belief system that just because it didn't work right now doesn't mean that we can't try something else. So we'll get it. We'll get it. That is optimism, right? Like, it's being, being prepared, prepared's not the right word, but being willing to move forward when things don't go as planned. Things never go as planned. And I'm not saying not to have a plan because it's great to be you know, strategic and have plans, but just know that your, your plan probably won't go according to plan. And that's okay. You will have hiccups. You will have bumps along the road and that's what it's about. So it's better off. You're probably gonna feel much better if you approach it that way versus the opposite. So I've always, I mean, circles back yeah, to, go ahead. Yeah, it circles back to what you said about growth mindset. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, someone's got a fixed mindset. They're going to do that. They're like, oh, crap. And then it's going to stop. Right. And the, the growth mindset is going to see that and say, oh, no, this is this is just more info, more ammo, uh, pun intended, to put in my uh, holster to, to use. And I think, yeah, that's right there what I see. Yeah. You know, and I, I do think there are people who struggle um, you know, that people might have anxiety and really struggle with an anxiety disorder that can make them live in a space of worry. And that's a very real thing. And I think, again, we'll just keep throwing tips and tricks. Like if that is you, just one thing that you can tell yourself is that's not what it's time for now. There's going to be time to worry. You, you'll have mm. time for that. <laughs> we, we will all have time to worry about stuff. But generally speaking, at the workplace when mistakes are made, um, right now is probably not time to worry. So let's move forward. You can worry about it later. Or get mad. Yep, exactly. It. Do what you need to do. Yeah. Move forward. Well, I got to honor one more thing in there before maybe Allison and I hear kind of through all the ground that we've covered what's really sticking out for you. But number nine, it's something I've said here before in this idea of share credit. Mm. And I've highlighted Truman's quote, and we've seen it. It's amazing what we can get done when no one cares who gets the credit. Powell's even quoted as saying that before, though. I think he was miscredited because I think Truman might have the log on that. But I just love that idea. As a leader, just when your team wins, you win. Right. When your team wins, you don't have to be the one saying, we did it because of me. In fact, usually when teams win, they're kind of going to look around, geez, how did you all do it? And then they're going to find the leader and ask them how they made it happen. So 
But like I said, Allison, we've covered tons of ground. What's your big aha or takeaway from Colin Powell, this loss that we've experienced, but the leadership lessons that we can gain? I think if I had to leave you with one thing to focus on, but before I do, by the way, what you just shared, again, highlights to me the importance of honesty, because that is honest, right? Like Hmm. giving credit where credit is due, that's honesty. So that's one of them. And I think highlighting some of the things that we know from Colin Powell's legacy is really to see failure as an opportunity. Get get friendly with challenges. Get friendly with them, right? Hmm. Learn from your mistakes and apply those mistakes later and then throw it away and do not name it a failure anymore. Just don't label it a failure. It's an opportunity and it was a growth instead. What about you? Wonderful. It probably boils down to lesson number four, rule number four. It can be done. Yeah. And I've always thought about the idea of, I think the movie's called The Edge with Anthony Hopkins. You ever seen No. That? Anyway, there's this rousing scene where he's talking to another character and he's saying, what one man can do, another can do. And they're kind of shouting this as they fight this big bear or before they fight this bear. It's a great movie. Check it out. <laughs> uh, but not to derail us, but I think about the idea, it can be done. You know, when leaders look at all of this stuff and think about, man, as a leader, I have to do so much. Or what if I don't get it right? Or... God, what if I do listen to the negative voices or the naysayers? And I just think, you know, it can be done. It's it's not about trying to climb the whole mountain in a day. It's not about running the whole marathon right now. What does it look like to take that first step? Yeah. And so maybe lead with that. Yeah, lead with that. Well, thanks for the conversation, Ren. This was, for me, more of, a, of an inspirational feel. So I appreciate it. And um a special thanks to Ryan, of course, and the whole team behind the scenes that make yep. our podcast possible. And you can find our show notes for today's episode, as well as links to all of our podcasts on ccl.org. Find us on LinkedIn, too, if you feel up for that. And we look forward for, um, for next time. We'll see you soon. Yeah, and catch Allison on TikTok. <laughs> all right, we'll see you next time, everybody.